You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at OVAnthologyPod. And if you like what you hear and you would like to support what I do here with your money, um, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, early access to podcast episodes, and special uh, recordings that I do that don't necessarily even fit in the in the grand scheme of my regular podcasting. And that's spread across all three of my podcasts, Obsessive Viewer, Anthology, and Tower Junkies. Um, so there's a bunch of content on there if you want to help support the show and support my podcasting. Um, all the money that I raise on Patreon goes to paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Again, you can find that uh, you can you can sign up at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And today on the show, I am recording this right under the wire. I um, I wanted to get this episode out before the end of the year just because I wanted to um, I don't know. I, I don't know. It <laughs> like I wanted to get uh, something put out before the end of the year and also because I decided to change up what I was doing this episode. So anyway, um, today on the show on this New Year's Eve is when I'm uh, posting this. Uh, I got a little distracted because I have cat hair on my on my microphone. But anyway, um, today on the show, I'll be discussing The Dummy, which is the 33rd episode of The Twilight Zone's third season. And it originally aired on May 4th, 1962. And I know last week on the podcast, I had said that I was going to do probably do an overview of science fiction theater season one since I finished the season last week. But I figured that in the spirit of the holiday season, I am going to do a full review of the 1964 TV movie Carol for Another Christmas, which was written by Rod Serling and directed by uh, Joseph uh, Joseph Mankiewicz. Um, and that, uh, yeah, that is available to stream on um, HBO Max, and it is also available in its entirety on YouTube. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode. Um, but but yeah, so we've got a big show. Um, one of the reasons also that I didn't uh, I didn't I decided against doing a full um, season overview of science fiction theater season one is that I realized that I have been reviewing season one of science fiction theater since like 2019 and we're about to get into 2023. So I felt like I wouldn't be able to do a really good like overview of it without going back and listening to my old reviews and rewatching several episodes and everything. So I figured I'm going to let the podcast stand where it is. Let my let my feelings on the show stand where they are. Um, in the podcast world. And I think that when I finish up 
uh, season two of science fiction theater, um, I'll do a, a complete series overview episode. But anyway, um, that's what's on the docket tonight. Um, I do want to say before I get into the episode and everything that I hope everyone uh, has had a very happy and safe holiday season uh, so far. We are about to get into the um, we're about to get into the like New Year's where we're going into 2023, and as such, of course, the sci-fi channel is doing their um their their twilight zone marathon it begins oh geez does it begin uh i did not put it in my notes but it's interesting because it's running to like january 3rd i think um it is it is a massive marathon it's going to have um oh it's it, it what's interesting is that it's going to also have um entries from uh, several episodes from season four uh which i which is pretty interesting is getting some conversation going but also a few episodes from the 2019 cbs all access paramount plus um jordan peele twilight zone revival which is pretty interesting um so anyway okay so i just i, I stalled for time i went to uh i went to the night gallery.wordpress.com um so yeah the uh yeah so anyway um, this is kind of funny because here, so I didn't realize this, but, um, the Twilight Zone Marathon begins, I'm recording this December 30th at 10.38 p.m. The Twilight Zone Marathon begins December 31st at 5 a.m. And it is going to run, uh, a total of, um, let's see, it's going to run to, uh, Tuesday, January 3rd at 3.30 a.m. when it's going to show the final episode that it's showing in the marathon, which is going to be I Sing the Body Electric. Now, the thing that kind of makes me kind of laugh about all of this <laughs> is that, um, it, I've never been able to do the marathon just because of the the way that this podcast is structured the way that i have forced myself to do a first time viewer thing i can't watch i can't really watch the marathon because i don't want to see shows i don't want to see episodes that i haven't seen unless i'm covering them for the podcast so i've always avoided doing um, the marathon and everything, but this year I'm still avoiding it. I'm still going to not watch it, but, um, this year what I did is I scheduled a whole bunch of tweets to go out, um, with links to my reviews of, uh, the episodes, uh, as they're airing with like little bits and pieces, um, just like saying like, oh, I liked this about this episode. Here's my review. I liked this about that episode. I didn't really like this about that that episode. Hear me talk about it on this episode. All of this stuff. So I went through the timeline. I went through the schedule and I scheduled tweets for pretty much every episode that I have seen and covered at least through through to midnight tonight or midnight tomorrow night so at least the first day is covered i'm going to be tweeting at ov anthology pod these are all scheduled tweets that are going to go out and everything so i'm not going to i i don't know it's not it's not going to be a live tweet kind of thing which i know a lot of twilight zone fans do that which is very admirable um and something that i hope to do someday when i finally finish uh the twilight zone and everything but 
those tweets are going to be going out um, beginning, uh, December 31st. By the time this episode, by, by the time you guys are listening to this episode, I will have tweeted all of this stuff because it's a very quick, uh, turnaround. But anyway, um, all that's to say this marathon is going to be big. It's going to be fun. Um, the three episodes from the 2019 series that they're showing are Meet in the Middle, The Wonderkind, and The Who of You, which I find interesting that those are the three that they're choosing. Um, I, I I liked them. Uh, the Wonderkind kind of grew, grew on me, but I, I still hate that campaign song. And I think that it's also just a little bit too, it's a little bit too much. Like it's a little bit too heightened and everything, but it has a pretty good payoff at the end. But um, The Who of You, I think is phenomenal. And Ethan Embry's performance in that is absolutely incredible. And I really liked Meet in the Middle as well. So it's a good, it's a good run of episodes. It's kind of well, okay, Wonderkind is season one, but it's interesting that they're doing two from season two and one from season one. But anyway, um, yeah, so looking at the schedule, there's there's a lot of good stuff there. When I was planning out those tweets, um, scheduling them, I kept thinking like, oh, there's so many that are missing from it too, which is crazy because the marathon is very long. It's 125 episodes, which is incredible considering that the twilight zone has 156 episodes um so that's really good for fans and everything um and we are also going to be getting eight episodes from season four which obviously i can't watch any of those um but what i was thinking about doing is i talked about this in a previous episode that i did when when working from home um a while ago uh but i basically live tweeted this custom um i don't know this kind of custom Twilight Zone marathon that I had because I just had um, a hard drive full of all the episodes that I've seen up to this point, and I had it on random, and I just played it on my TV. Um, so that was my own kind of like Twilight Zone marathon. So I was thinking I might do something like that again. Uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that Sunday for for the first. Maybe I'll have my own little Twilight Zone marathon. But anyway. All, all that's to say, I have my tweets scheduled at least through December 31st into, uh, like, up to midnight. Um, if I have time, I might uh, schedule out some tweets tonight for the rest of the marathon, but we'll see. But, uh, but I do hope that everyone listening enjoys the marathon and checks it out and everything. So, okay. Now to go uh, into my segment for from the world of fiction and science, where I talk about, um, I guess I'm already in it since I talked about the marathon, but basically some anecdotes and interesting uh, factoids and like updates about stuff that I've watched and and experienced in like science fiction and, and genre media, basically. And the first thing I want to bring up is that for Christmas, I received, um, my, my girlfriend gave me a uh, copy of Night of the Living Dead uh, on Criterion Blu-ray, which Night of the Living Dead is incredible. I absolutely adore that movie. It is um, something that when <laughs> I have very fond memories of it because that, like watching that I, I, I can't remember the first time I saw Night of the Living Dead, but I think it was after I became very much enamored with zombie stories and everything. So to see where it kind of originated was very much, very much uh, it, like imprinted on me, like even more love for that. 
Um, like I remember, I remember setting aside an entire day, like Halloween 2010, when The Walking Dead was going to premiere, and I had the I had the night off from work, so I spent the entire day just watching zombie movies leading up to the pilot episode, and I ordered pizza, and it was a lot of fun. But anyway, so Night of the Living Dead on Criterion on Blu-ray, I had not owned yet. Um, oh, oh, I was also going to say that it. Um, I have a lot of nostalgia for Night of the Living Dead because my friends uh, in on Obsessive Viewer, we put together, um, for a few years, we put together what we called Shocktober in Irvington, where we did live screenings of short films from local filmmakers uh, to benefit um, a community's histor- uh, um Irvington Historical Society. Irvington's a nice little hamlet in on the east side of Indianapolis um, that they do this whole big thing with with Halloween, like the Halloween festival and stuff. It's really cool. But anyway, we did that for several years. But the first year since Night of the Living Dead is in pub, in the public domain, uh, we screened Night of the Living Dead as the as the as the kind of topper, the the closer for that thing. Um, we actually have a live um, a live. Um, edition of the Obsessive Viewer podcast from that, so check the archives for that. But anyway, so uh, very, very happy to have Night of the Living Dead on Blu-ray, and I'm very excited to check out a lot of the special features and commentary tracks and everything, because Criterion always puts out an incredible um, an incredible uh, release. So uh, the next thing I have is that um, there is going to be a Kickstarter that launch that is launching on February 1st, 2023. Um, it is a Kickstarter to fund a Rod Serling statue, uh, to be constructed and placed in, uh, Binghamton, uh, New York. So check that out, rodserlingmonument.com. Uh, there's going to be more information that's going to come, but the Kickstarter is launching on February 1st, 2023. Um, and yeah, we should definitely all rally behind that and get that done because, uh, there's not a more deserving person to, ha- to be immortalized in, uh, in a statue in his hometown. I think he would, he would really love that. So, um, if, if he was, if he were here. So, uh, so check that out, rodserlingmonument.com. And finally, the final thing I'm going to say for, uh, from the world of fiction and science before I get into my reviews is that, um, it is on the subject of the dummy, the episode that I'm reviewing tonight. Um, the, I've mentioned this podcast before, but Twilight Zone Sandbox has, released several episodes at this point. They're, they're kind of a newer podcast. It's another one man show. Um, that's all about the twilight zone. And I'm really, really enjoying this podcast. Um, the host, he puts a lot of effort into making just very fun, unique episodes, unique angles for, um, like, like taking unique angles toward the subjects that he's covering. Like I talked about it in a previous episode, but he did a, um, uh, also relevant to the dummy. Um, he did a, um, uh, oh God, I can't remember how he phrased it, but it was like a, um, like a trading card thing to talk about certain actors. So he did a two part episode with about Cliff Robertson, where he's like saying the stats as if he's reading them off of a baseball card, which is really cool, really clever. It, like the creativity of this show is really entertaining. But the reason I bring it up again is because Twilight Zone Sandbox has an episode that they recently put out, I think in November, um, that's about the dummy. But the concept of that episode, and I 
was just tickled pink by it. The concept of the episode is that it is a it is a riff on like it, it's a parody of true crime podcasts and the crime that is at the center of this podcast the, the episode is like the case of Google of of uh, Goofy Goggles and I listened to it and the production value is incredible. The cleverness, like it, like he he goes to some links that for some Easter eggs and some references that I was just I was I was very much very much a fan of that. It was such a joy to watch and especially after just watching the dummy uh and seeing like like I don't know, I was very very impressed. So check that out Twilight Zone Sandbox put I'll put links in the show notes and everything but but yeah, the 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 episode on the dummy, the true crime episode that he did was just a lot of fun to listen to and um I can't wait to just dive into more of his stuff cuz uh that show is very very entertaining. So that's all I have for From the World of Fiction and Science. So let me go ahead and go into the episode proper. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel like I've I've been a lot more long-winded here. It's the end of the year. We are about, uh, like, as of this recording, I'm like 23, or no, 25, uh, like 25 and a half hours away from 2023. And that's pretty cool. And <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Um, this is the last podcast episode that I'm recording in 2022. It's my 59th podcast episode that I'll be releasing in 2022. That's across all three of my podcasts. Um, and then I have just uh, over a hundred, I'm sure. Um, actually I can tell you exactly how many right now. Um, on Patreon, I have a total of, um, let's see. Oh, Okay, I have a total of, on Patreon, I've released 148 recordings across the four uh, Patreon tiers. So, it's been a very busy 2022, but anyway, you can check that out on the Obsessive Viewer next month when we do our uh, year in review episode that we do every year. But anyway, let me go ahead and stop delaying this episode, and let me go into my review of The Dummy. And before I do that, of course, I'm going to... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say what I knew about this episode before, um, I watched it. Um, what I knew before going into this episode for the first time was that this is a fairly iconic episode about a ventriloquist dummy. And what I assumed was that it was a story about a dummy that comes to life and threatens people or even kills people. I think that my, in my, my assumption was basically a, I think I basically got it, um, uh, conflated it with Living Doll, which I think is in season five, um, because I know that that's about a doll that wants to kill people or something. So I assumed that this was the case here. Um, and I, uh, I also, uh, assumed and didn't do research to confirm this or not, but I assumed that it was probably the inspiration for the character of Slappy in the Goosebumps uh, books and TV show, um, in particular the Night of the Living Dummy, because it has a very similar likeness and it's very iconic for uh, the Goosebumps um, canon, I guess, and um, as someone who grew up in the nineties, I like goosebumps was my, like my defining piece of, of, uh, of media and literature in my elementary school years. I owe a great, great debt to R.L. Stein for that. But anyway, um, and the other thing that I knew about this was that the original prop is owned 
by David Copperfield, the magician, and that in 2019 he loaned it to Monkey Paw Productions so that they could use it in the background of the pilot episode or the first episode of uh, the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot, The Comedian. And in exchange for that, I talked about this in the episode and everything, my bonus review of it, but um, in exchange for that, uh, they just needed to reference him by name. In <laughs> They needed to reference him in the show. And so there is a part where Kumail Nanjiani uh, says that he's like a fucked up David Copperfield or something. Um, so yeah. So anyway, uh, more on that in my reviews of the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot, but, um, that's what I knew before going into this episode. So now I'm going to share the plot summary courtesy of unlocking the door to television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, so as is always the case, I'm going to be spoiling the episode from here on out. So if you have not seen the episode, go watch it and then come back and listen to the review, but I'm going to be spoiling it from here on out. So here we go. Uh, courtesy of unlocking the door to a television classic, the wooden half of, of a, Oh, I fumbled that, uh, the wooden half of a ventriloquist partnership longs to go solo and on occasion breaks the routine on stage. Jerry has seen a psychiatrist taken to the bottle and pleaded for help from even his closest friends. Liquors and doctors cannot help because Willie really is a living and breathing force of nature. In an effort to dispose of his supposed uh, hallucinations, Jerry replaces Willie with another wooden dummy. Uh, late that evening after the nightclub closes, Jerry feels like a new man because he's going to work with the new dummy in on a permanent basis. As he walks alone through the dark alleys in the streets of the city, he starts suffering from delusions of Willie's laughs. The voice gets so loud that Jerry races back to the nightclub and opening the trunk smashes the doll into pieces. Only discover that he only to discover that he destroyed the wrong dummy. Willie is still intact. Getting down to business, Jerry is stuck with agreeing to a compromise. On a different nightclub stage, a few evenings later, the ventriloquist act of Jerry and Willie entertain the audience with the same old jokes and routines, with Jerry and Willie having switched places. Uh, starring as Jerry Etherson, the ventriloquist, uh, and also providing the voice of Willie and uh, and the voice of Goofy Goggles, is Cliff Robertson, making his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. We previously saw him in A, a Hundred Yards Over the Rim, and he was also in Rod Serling's uh, scripted, um, the Rod Serling scripted episode of, I think... I don't know if it was suspense. It was uh, maybe Playhouse 90, but Bomber's Moon, which I reviewed in an early episode of the podcast. Um, and I found a, a very interesting piece of trivia about this and about uh, Cliff Robertson. Um, I'm going to read this quote from him in, uh, from, from unlocking the door to a television classic. So, uh, here we go. The quote is quote, I did two of those twilight zone episodes. I had a reservation on an American airlines or Pan Am flight from New York to California for one of them. I believe it was the dummy. I was scheduled to arrive in Holly in Hollywood days before they really needed me. I re I rescheduled for a later flight and someone told me that I would get into trouble, but I just did not see any reason for flying in and waiting for my turn before the camera. I'm glad now that I did it because soon after that flight took off, the pilot had a heart attack and everyone perished. That episode of the Twilight Zone almost killed me. And I was really interested in this and I was curious because it, the detail, there's enough details for me to look into what it was, uh, look into what happened. 
And uh, sure enough, I found it. Um, American Airlines Flight 1 was, and I'm reading this from Wikipedia now, um, was a domestic scheduled passenger flight from New York International, uh, at the time Idlewild Airport, now JFK, um, to L.A., um, on March 1st, 1962, the Boeing 707 rolled over and crashed into Jamaica Bay two minutes after takeoff, killing all 87 passengers and eight crew members aboard. Um, so basically, um, Cliff Robertson had it wrong in that quote. What had happened was there was some kind of malfunction. Um, it's very technical. Like the, 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 um, Wikipedia page has a lot of information on it, and it's a lot of stuff that I just didn't really feel up to reading all of it. But there's uh, there's about about the obviously the federal investigation in it, uh, and oh, here was interest, uh, an interesting thing to kind of um, confirm the. Uh, I guess, I guess confirm that Cliff Robertson was, was incorrect in that quote. Um, again, reading from Wikipedia, investigators were unable to, and this is horrible, um, investigators were unable to recover, uh, sufficient body tissue determine, to determine whether the crew had been physically incapacitated at the time of the crash. Toxicology reports conclusively ruled out toxic gases, alcohol, and drugs as possible causes for the crash. Um... So yeah, and and it sounds horrific, but um, then yeah, the only other thing, um, <laughs> the only other piece of information about this that I will bring up is that um, apparently I I haven't I, I've seen this episode, but it's um, in Mad Men season one episode two. Uh, the episode is actually titled Flight One, and uh, and it's uh, it's a like the plot has this. Um, has this plane crash involved in it? Um, the possibility of, Oh, I guess because the episode included them, um, uh, pitching to American airlines, I think, I don't know, like before the crash. Uh, but anyway, it serves as a plot point in that episode of Mad Men. I wasn't really that into Mad Men. Um, maybe I'll give it another shot someday, but anyway, uh, so that's an interesting piece of trivia about Cliff Robertson. Um, yeah, and, and this is him concluding his uh, his stint in the Twilight Zone, um, and co-starring in this episode as Frank, who plays Jerry's agent in the show, um, is Frank Sutton. Uh, this was his only episode of the Twilight Zone, and he didn't really have any other like collaborations with Serling, or he didn't appear in any of Serling's other works or anything. However. I kept thinking, like, I recognize him from somewhere, and it took me just looking up his IMDb, obviously, but I immediately thought, like, oh, oh, okay, he played Sergeant Carter in Gomer Pyle USMC. Um, growing up, my 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 dad uh, was a huge fan of Gomer Pyle and, uh, and uh, Andy Griffith and everything. Uh, my dad, uh, my both my parents were in the Marines. And so anything that included or involved the Marines, um, uh, was something that was on rotation, um, a lot at home, but yeah, but, but Frank Sutton, uh, played Sergeant Carter and that's, that's a notable role of his. Um, and then, uh, in, uh, the next person in the cast is George Murdoch, uh, who is, uh, who plays Willie as the ventriloquist version of him at the end. Uh, this was his only episode of the Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in the pilot episode of Night Gallery in 1969 in the segment Escape Route, which I forgot to mention in my, uh, um, from the world of fiction and science, 
Um, in addition to getting Night of the Living Dead on Blu-ray, I actually got uh, the first two seasons of Night Gallery on Blu-ray as well. Um, so I'm excited to, I'm very excited to, to dig into those. I'm thinking that I might do some Patreon exclusive stuff next year. Um, don't hold me to that. Like, don't, don't, if, if you are, if you are itching for me to cover Night Gallery, um, do not sign up for the Patreon until you know that I'm covering Night Gallery, <laughs> please, uh, please. Uh, but, but yeah, that's something I'm thinking about, but I've got a lot of irons in the fire on Patreon. But anyway, um, yeah, that is the only thing, uh, else re- related to Rod Serling that George Murdoch was in. And then uh, playing Georgie, the nightclub manager, is John Harmon, and this was his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next we'll see from him is uh, an appearance in season four uh, in the episode of Late, I think, of Cliffordville. And then finally, uh, rounding out the cast as Noreen is Sandra Warner. This is her second of two Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw her in A Nice Place to Visit. And uh, I don't really have anything else about her, although I will say that she, uh, sadly enough, she passed away back in March of this year. Um, Yeah. So writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and it was based on a story by Lee Polk, who was a viewer of The Twilight Zone who worked, I think he worked at an, uh, a New York a New York City news station, like an affiliate station. Um, and he had basically just submitted a story idea about a ventriloquist dummy coming to life and improvising on stage. So Serling ending, ended, ended up buying the rights and wrote the teleplay himself. So that's where that credit comes from and everything. And then rounding out the cast and crew, the talent rundown for the dummy is director Abner Biberman, which this is interesting because we're we're deep in the Twilight Zone at this point, and this is his first uh, his first stint as director of four Twilight Zone episodes. He's gonna he's gonna direct, so that's really interesting. That the, kind of this relatively late in the game, we've got a new a new repeat director uh, making his first first. Um, uh, run at it this late in the game, relatively late. But anyway, uh, next we'll see from him is season four's The Incredible World of Horace Ford, and uh, other notable credits include uh, a one one episode that he directed of The Outer Limits, uh, season one, episode eight, The Human Factor, that was directed in 1963. Also, shame, uh, shameless uh, plug, uh, check out uh, the Outer Limits podcast, Victor Gamboa's show. It's fantastic, and he's a great guy. So, uh, yeah, th- elsewhere for Abner Biberman, uh, or Bieberman, I'm not sure how he pronounced it, but or pronounces that, I don't know if he's still alive or not, um, he was also an actor that had, throughout his career, he had 56 acting credits. And one of his most notable roles I could find was a, uh, a role as Louie in His Girl Friday, which is a movie that I have never seen, but I really want to because I am a fan of the romantic comedy and uh, that is on the docket for my... Um, <laughs> that's that's on my my syllabus for my education in romantic comedies, I guess. So 
Now that we have run down the talent for the dummy, let me go into my review of this episode, and I'll just start at the beginning, like I always do. So, um, we see, this is probably the easiest way to open this episode, is just with a stage act of a ventriloquist act, um, Jerry is doing his act, the crowd seems to enjoy it quite a bit, um, and there's some pretty good like back and forth in this scene, um, or I guess <laughs> there's good performance in the scene. Really, um, one bit that stood out. I, I one bit that stood out and one that didn't. So one that stood out was when Jerry says, "What would you do without me?" And then he has Willie say, uh, "For one thing, I'd be a better ventriloquist." And I was like, "That's that's good. That's good. That's a clever turn of phrase." But then the other one that I didn't really understand is that he talks about how a funny thing happened when he was outside of the Ritz something, um, and then he says, um, I live there, I live outside of the Ritz something, and I'm just like, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that myself, so I don't know if that's something that makes more sense in the, uh, in the era, or if it's something that I just, uh, I'm, I don't get, I don't know, but anyway, um, so, we see from this moment, from this opening scene, that the crowd does enjoy the ventriloquist act. He is successful, at least at this stage, and, and on this stage, really. And the closer, the closer of his act is that he switches his voice with Willie's voice, and the crowd very much enjoys that. Like, that is that is a kind of showstopper, not, maybe not a showstopper, but it is it gets a bigger a bigger response from the crowd than what it was before. And I love the foreshadowing of that because <laughs> that is just such a clean way to just foreshadow the surprise ending. And it's something that, that makes me respect this episode a lot because it really feels like this is this is a more I don't want to say subtle, but it's it's a more um it's a more impactful episode than I think it, it's a more impactful episode while also being a good, like, oh, this is a good suspense, like, surprise ending episode. And I just, I just really respect the way that it's done because it's a pretty simple, straightforward story and everything. And it very much plays into the, um, the suspense of it and everything as well, which I'll talk about. But anyway, I really like that. And then as, uh, as Jerry is taking, um, it, or, or no, it's not, he's not taking him backstage yet or anything, but as he's performing, the camera pans over to the crowd and this has another really cool en entrance for Serling. Um, it's not, it, I, I think my favorite, honestly, I think my favorite introduction of Serling in the show, um, aside from, um, oh, oh, uh, um, not a nice place to visit, but, um, uh, oh God, why can't I think of it? Um, the, it's a good life. It's a good life. Uh, that, that just kind of really threw me for a loop. But, uh, aside from that, one, one of my favorites is little girl lost when we just see his shoes as he's walking up and then the camera pans up. But here's a very good one because it's very just, it's cool. Like that's, that's the best way I can describe it. It's very cool. He's sitting at a table. He's at the nightclub. Um, the crowd is, is clapping and applauding and, and laughing and everything. And it just has this, this suaveness to it that we see Serling in his suit and everything. He's sitting there and he is giving his opening narration, which I will play right now. 
You're watching a ventriloquist named Jerry Etherson, a voice thrower par excellence. His alter ego sitting atop his lap is a brash stick of kindling with the sobriquet Willie. In a moment, Mr. Etherson and his knotty pine partner will be booked into one of the out-of-the-way bistros, that small, dark, intimate place known as the Twilight Zone. And I love this opening narration as well. Um, uh, again, it's another case of Serling just throwing those $5 words at us that I, like, I'm not educated enough to understand. But, uh, like, when he says, it, it, like, the, the descriptions that he uses are just so poetic and beautiful. Like, he says, um, he says his alter ego sitting atop his lap is a brash stick of kindling with the sobriquet uh, Willie. It's just like that just rolls off his tongue really well. I struggle with it because, you know, but I, I, I like that a lot. I think that it's very colorful, um, colorful writing for the opening narration. So when we come back, I, that's when I kind of realized that it was Cliff Robertson. I didn't realize him and it, it was him in the opening, um, in the opening scene or anything, but I just kind of realized like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's Cliff Robertson. Let's, let's go, let's do it. Um, and I realized or I noticed immediately upon returning to the show from the opening scene uh, that there's a lot of moody, ominous music that plays, which is really, really interesting. It's it's a good I mean, it's kind of standard, maybe not standard, but it's 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 a it's a good way to just bring us into the suspense without while being kind of subtle about it. Like at this point, I didn't know that we were going to get a a relatively frightening scene. Um, or entire sequence in this episode. So having this kind of like bringing us into the episode or bringing us into the into the episode as a title card is is showing with this moody, ominous music is very fun uh, and good, like foreshadowing. So uh, I in in this threw me for a loop because I one hundred percent for a very long time thought that this episode was going to be about the ventriloquist dummy. Uh, coming to life and killing people. And then we see Jerry. Um, he's closing his act. He's leaving. Um, he keeps coming back. He comes back a couple times on stage and says like, oh, hey, you know, you can do this or whatever, or like, we'll be back later or whatever. And then he has Willie say, oh, I'm being kidnapped. I'm being kidnapped. And th like, that's, that's really fun and interesting. And then we see Jerry react to Willie biting him. And I found that to be, uh, like in that moment, I thought like, wait a second, it made me rethink everything because I, I thought that this was going to lead, like it was going to be a case where it was going to be revealed to us that Willie is already alive and that the kind of whole Twilight Zone element is already established in Jerry's life and that Jerry has been keeping this, this uh, this ventriloquist dummy hostage for his act. That's not at all what the episode is at all. And I really like the way that the, the, like the way the actual episode goes, um, plays out and everything. Honestly, I think that it's, I, I like, there's no qualms with it. And I find that there's a lot of meat on the bone here, but I also kind of lament the fact that it's not that, because I think it would be kind of interesting to see, um, to go in progress of this person that's exploiting this object that's this enchanted object that um that against its will i think that that would be an interesting thing but anyway uh jerry is then backstage with willie 
he uh, looks at the bite mark on his finger and then looks at Willie, um, which again, like, I love the silence of this moment of this room and also the way that the set decoration and the lighting and the cinematography, the way that that um, very subtly establishes or um, establishes sort of a not place of comfort in the scene, but a familiarity with the scene. So what I mean by that is that it establishes it as a well-lit room, really. And then when we come back to it later in the episode, it's completely dark, it's ominous, it's scary, it's creepy. So I really like how this episode is building toward that by just showing us this really fairly innocuous room with this magic thing in it. Um, so I just like that as a bit of kind of visual foreshadowing for us or uh, setting up a, a big payoff at the end. So in this moment, though, there's a lot of silence and it's building up this supernatural element, I believe. And we see uh, Willie looking at Jerry through the mirror and then Jerry turns around and Willie's head is pointed in the opposite direction. And I love that because Jerry is alone. Like we're going to get a scene here in a moment where Frank comes in and they're and they're talking about what's going on with Jerry. And I love that the I love that the show does not have Willie interact with other people or it doesn't have Willie um show himself. It's kind of like a Toy Story kind of thing, <laughs> but I love that there's a plausible deniability in the script that leaves it to the idea up until the end that maybe this is all in Jerry's head. Maybe he is maybe he is, you know, mentally unstable and and maybe the doctors are right. Um I love that there's that plausible deniability in it and everything. So anyway, uh then Frank comes in and uh, and he starts complimenting the act and he talks about, um, he, he talks about how he can be better and everything. And then he, and then he also, uh, I should mention, he also spins Willie's head around, um, and Jerry just panics and tells him to stop and everything. That's when Frank switches gears and he berates Jerry for drinking and saying that, says that like, you promised that you would only drink soda. You wouldn't drink, you know, alcohol or anything. Um, and that leads Frank to just completely admonish Jerry. He tells him that Jerry could be a star, but the alcohol is keeping him from success. And even now, the alcoholism, the alcohol consumption and everything is endangering what he even has now. The success that he has now is endangered by the fact that he keeps getting drunk and keeps blowing off these performances and everything. But it's really interesting because then Jerry says that he has to drink. Like, he has to drink to cope with the threat of the dummy. And the outside perspective of that, from Frank's perspective, he has to, he feels, Jerry, he believes that Jerry ha feels like he has to drink to keep the, um, kind of the the psychosis at bay from from Frank's per perspective. And here in this moment when Jerry says that he has to drink, it reminds me a lot of Jack Klugman's character in a passage for Trumpet. Um I think there's some interesting kind of parallels there but in a different way. Um then what's usual it's not derivative or anything cuz this is a very interesting angle for this kind of tortured performer um character and everything. So Jerry then says that he has to get rid of Willie. And Frank, I loved this because Frank says, uh, he refers to Willie as 
because um, he, he's trying to downplay it. He's trying to say that that Willie is just a doll. He's not. He's just a dummy. He he isn't a danger or anything. But he refers to Willie as a fugitive from the fireplace. And I thought that was really that was a really good turn of phrase. Um, and then he just asks him point blank. He says he asks him how many psychiatrists does he have to see. Um, to to get clear of this and everything and this ha- this is maybe my favorite scene of the episode um because they they get riled up they get into a shouting match with each other and jerry goes into this whole spiel about how he's been diagnosed as a schizophrenic he has paranoid schizophrenia and everything and he but he denies it. He says that it's all wrong, that that Willie is alive and no one will believe him, but Willie is alive and he's threatening him and everything. Um, he says it's no more schizophrenia or paranoia than it is athlete's foot or a head cold. Willie's alive. And I loved that because the commitment, the the conviction in Cliff Robertson's uh, line read of those, his performance in that moment is just so like, you can tell in that moment that this is a character who is at the end of his rope. He is very much desperate to be clear of, of what's ailing him. And you don't even necessarily blame Frank at all for, for not believing him for, for, uh, for, for taking the more logical approach to it. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting angle on this kind of, um, magic element in the episode because it's not something that is to be proven to another character. It's just something that necessarily can't necessarily be proven, but it is something that that the burden of proof is not existent or is not is not a focal point of the episode. It's more about what the what the what the experience does to the character. So I really appreciate that and everything. Um I just yeah, so uh, so yeah, so at this point, I kind of wondered if it was going to lead to the episode being about whether or not it's true or not, whether or not it's delusion or if it's magic. I was very curious how it was going to play out and I'll spoil the review, uh, right now. I really liked where it headed and I have a lot of thoughts about that, uh, to, at the end of this episode. So anyway, um, Frank gets very agitated and shoves Willie in Jerry's face and tells him that it's just a doll. It's not alive. And at this moment, I, so I was so excited for myself because I'm an idiot, but um, not an idiot, but, um, I was very excited for myself because I thought like, oh, okay. Oh, I think I'm, I think I'm picking up what is being put down in this episode right now, because when Frank shoves Willie into Jerry's face, Willie's eyes are like looking like they're looking to the looking to his right, I think, um, right at Frank's face in the way that the shot is framed. It looks so much like Willie is just glaring at Frank, like with an angry expression. So at this moment, I was like, okay, I know exactly what's going to happen, guys. Willie is going to come to life and he's going to murder Frank and he's going to just want Jerry all to himself and all this, and he's, he's going to dictate everything, whatever. Not what happened, but, um, I was, I, I thought that regardless of it not leading to that, I do think that that just, that is a very, a very inspired kind of piece of, uh, of filmmaking there just to have, uh, intentional or not, just having Willie kind of glare at, 
at Frank in that moment? Is it just a nice, subtle bit of suspense? Because even if you don't really register it, it still it still feels unnatural because we've already established that Willie is potentially alive um, in potentially alive or potentially a delusion of Jerry. And to have us see an expression of anger or disapproval on Willie's face in a heated moment between two people is really, really clever. I, I really like that. So, then Frank uh, explains that he is covered. He's covered for Jerry when he has blown off a total of 110 shows, which is nuts to me. Um, and then that leads Frank to just give Jerry this ultimatum. He says that he has 24 hours to stop drinking and stop, get rid of this delusion about Willie. Um, you have 24 hours, and you better be ready for your for your set that's going on in 30 minutes. Um, you need you need to because uh, because Jerry wants to wants to blow it off. He wants it to be canceled. So Frank says like I'm not covering for you anymore. Like this is one performance I'm not going to cover for you. So it doesn't matter what you do, go out there and perform. And so Jerry picks up Goofy Goggles, the other dummy, and uh, he says he comes to the conclusion that the answer to his problem is to develop a whole other routine with this other dummy. And then that's how he can escape Willie. And so Frank kind of seems a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, I don't know. He, he seems, he seems very, very skeptical about that because Frank or Jerry only has like 30 minutes before a show to come up with a whole new routine. So, uh, Frank leaves just on note of, I'm not going to cover for you anymore. Uh, this is the last, I'm not covering for you. Be, be on stage in 30 minutes. So then the scene kind of winds down with Jerry alone in the room with Willie and Goofy Goggles, and he's working with Goofy Goggles. And, uh, he comes up with a, with a, um, with a bit that will be kind of the opening bit, uh, for the, for the performance. And he kind of reassures himself. He looks at he looks at Goofy Goggles and he says, like, yeah, this is going to work. We're going to work. Um, this is definitely going to work for us. And so Jerry then sets down to close out the act. He sets down Goofy Goggles and sees Willie sitting on the couch. And I loved this because, again, this is a moment that is just Jerry. Jerry is alone in this room and he sees Willie wink at him. And it is such a a nice taunting image, um, and it shows that Jerry Jerry's reaction shows that he is being you know he's um, he's being affected by it. He picks up a mirror and throws it at Willie. Um, I just I love it. I just love that the isolation of Jerry having no one to turn to, and we see we see from his perspective Willie coming to life, but we don't know if he's, we still don't know at this point whether it's real or not. Um, so this level of Jerry being isolated and alone and experiencing these crazy things with Willie helps preserve the magic and mystery of the episode throughout it. So, yeah. So then we get an act break, and when we come back, we get this scene that I... Honestly, I kind of feel like this scene and the scene with Frank and Georgie are a little bit, a little, I don't want to say they feel like filler, but they feel like inconsequential, basically. So 
Jerry comes out of the dressing room and two dancers from the from from the show uh, approach him and they start touching goofy goggles. And I couldn't really take I, I couldn't really understand exactly what they're saying because they're all very giggly and funny and 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 excited. And they're like, oh, I want you to talk to me as Willie. I want you to uh, throw your voice and everything. And I don't know if it's from, I, I don't know if it's from a place of them just being genuinely excited about, uh, about ventriloquism or if they're into him. I, I don't know. But, um, anyway, they start kind of touching goofy goggles and then we hear <laughs> Willie from inside the dressing room say, stop the tickles. And they giggle and laugh and everything. Um, but Jerry is in a hurry and he takes goofy goggles and runs off. Um, so I don't know. I just felt like that scene was a little bit strange and peculiar and doesn't, doesn't really fit that well with, uh, within the rest of the episode because they don't really come back. Like we see them leaving after they've changed and everything, but I, I feel like that, that just kind of felt a little bit, a little bit like filler. I'll commit to that. I'll commit to that criticism. So then we get Jerry and Goofy Goggles on the stage giving their uh giving their first performance together and it's it's a hoot like the the crowd seems to be liking it a lot and I I do I do appreciate that um that Jerry is going straight for the eyeglasses angle like it's very much a uh it's very much kind of just playing up that whole that whole eyesight thing it's it's fun it's fun and I really liked the absolutely completely different tone of Goofy Goggles' voice compared to Willie's voice. And I thought that, that was just, a, that was a nice detail to add. So then we next get another scene that I feel is slightly, I'll, I'll walk this back and I won't say that it's filler. I won't say that it's even ill-fitting because I do think that this scene between Frank and Georgie, the nightclub owner at the bar that they're talking about, they're talking about Jerry and Jerry's act. I do think that this serves quite a bit of importance in the episode. And I'll explain that in a bit, but basically Georgie, um, tells Frank that, you know, ventriloquist acts are boring and tired. Um, he says that, you know, if you've seen one, you've seen, you've seen them all. And then he also says that he doesn't understand why Jerry never socializes with guests or the other performers or staff. He never comes out to have a drink. He just, he just goes to his dressing room and comes back and, and goes on stage. He's very isolated and alone. And, um, Frank says that Jerry just hasn't been well recently and that this is the first night he's been out in a month or so. So then uh, Georgie then tells Frank that he needs to have Jerry come out and bring the dummy out to chat with the guests and everything. He needs to be more social. So this scene is fine. It's fine and it plays into something that I'll talk about at the end of the review, but it also just feels like a little bit, a little bit, disconnected from the rest of the episode, I guess. So, so yeah. So then Jerry takes Goofy Goggles back to the dressing room, having performed and do, done well and everything. And he then puts Willie in the case and uh, locks it and everything. And I loved this. He says, hey, your next stop will be, on, be in the fireplace. I just thought that that was great. So then as he's getting ready to leave, Frank comes in and says that he's been looking for him and that Georgie said that he wanted Jerry to mix it up with the audience and everything. 
And I really liked this because Jerry says that he's a ventriloquist, not a shill, which I thought was kind of interesting because it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, it does seem to be a pretty big ask um, of, of Georgie, I guess, but it also just seems to reinforce this idea that Jerry is, he is very much, I don't even want to say that he's comfortable in with his station at the club. He's, he's comfortable with where he is in terms of performance and everything, but he is someone who, I, I, I'll say this, he's not someone who seems comfortable with where he is more, uh, as much as he feels like he is a performer who is stuck very, very, very deeply in a rut. And that is something that I find interesting. And maybe it's something that I'm kind of putting into the episode that's not fully there. But the way that Frank earlier in the episode says that he believes that Jerry could be great, but the alcohol is, is affecting his abilities and everything. Um, the fact that Jerry is in this rut and Jerry is someone who is not branching out. He's not doing, he's not schmoozing the other performers or the, or the guests or anything. He's just doing his sets and getting paid. Um, and I think that there's a level of, um, uh, there's a little level of subtext to that, that comes into play at the end of the episode, I think. But, uh, Frank then drops the bombshell to Jerry and says that he's resigning from the club. He's no longer going to be Jerry's agent. And basically in no uncertain terms, he says that being Jerry's agent has been exhausting and that's why he's leaving. And he can't keep up with the stress of being his agent. Um, and at this moment, Jerry, doubles down and and reasserts the fact that reasserts the idea that Willie is actually alive and he says like he says kind of in a last ditch effort sort of sort of way in in last bit of desperation even he says that Willie speaks when he doesn't speak and he tells jokes that he's never heard before and so then he says that he is going to fly out of there and he names a few places that might be different and everything. He thinks that a change of location will cure him of his, of his ills. And Frank very surprisingly tender, tenderly, uh, says that it'll all be the same. No matter where he goes, Willie will always be around and he needs to stay here and can confront his issues and fix things here and now, because if he runs, it's only going to follow him. It's, it's not going to change. Um, so then the scene ends and Jerry leaves. And as he's leaving, he, he addresses the, um, the doorman, uh, who, uh, I didn't put him in the talent rundown, but he does appear, I think in one, an episode, a segment from the eighties twilight zone. But, uh, as he's like leaving, um, he then hears Willie's voice in his head and it is so creepy the way that the voice sounds. Um, I'm going to try to imitate it. It's not going to work, but, uh, he says, you're not going to leave me in the stuffy old trunk, are ya? And just the way that he says Arya, the way he drags it out and over-enunciates his words is so creepy and chilling. And I like the fact that we have this doorman that's there so that we can confirm, like, like that Jerry can confirm for himself and for the audience that this is a disembodied voice that he only heard in his head. The doorman didn't hear it, or security guard, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he didn't hear it, so this is a manifestation in his brain. So the question is, is the magic of Willie 
like enough for like tele- uh, telepathy or is it just an expansion of Jerry's illness um, and it's all in his head. So then Willie speaks again and he says, come on, old sport, I wouldn't lock you in a trunk. And again, the over enunciating for creepy effect works so well. And these moments, these disembodied words from Willie and everything create such a sense of paranoia and delusion that it's, it just makes the tension just come like, like hit you like a brick. It's palpable and I love it. And the, just the overall suspense of this sequence as we're beginning the sequence is absolutely just terrific. It's, it's amazing. And it's also pretty notable that this episode kind of on the whole, this episode is really interesting because it's taking this otherwise relatively not intimidating object creepy i'll grant you that ventriloquist dummies are creepy as hell but they're not intimidating and they're making this episode is 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 making it intimidating not by not by showing us it being like a chucky doll or anything it's focusing on the creepiness of the idea of what's happening and then goes into that suspenseful threat of it without without being silly. Like we see a silhouette of, of Willie. We hear his voice and everything. It's all around Jerry and he can't escape it. But it is so much more effective than if it was literally in the dressing room, Willie waking up and being like, hey, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this or something like that. So I really, I really enjoy that. And so then the as as Jerry is slowly getting more and more frantic, uh, the dancers exit having changed for the night and they wish Jerry a good night. And just this like innocuous scene it serves to set up the scene with Doreen that's coming up, but it also really helps amplify that level of isolation that Jerry feels um, because he can't say anything. He can't say anything. He can't ask for help because the situation that he's in is absolutely absurd. And on another level, on a more logical level, it is, it is insanity. And he can't like come to some, like he can't go up to the dancers and say, Hey, this ventriloquist dummy is haunting me and is wanting to kill me or do something horrible to me. Please help me because A, they can't help with that. And B, he would just be institutionalized or he would see more psychiatrists and everything and more doctors who would just come to the same conclusion that they've already had. So he already can't say anything because in addition to knowing the end game of that, and knowing the medical diagnosis diagnoses of of what would come from that would of what would come from reaching out for help um he like that is a block he can't do that because he believes it to be real and furthermore um, he's already done that he's confided in frank who doesn't believe him like no no um no shade at frank or anything but Frank has no reason to believe him because it defies logic. It is it is absurd. It's insane. So he Frank believes that it is medically like a a medical condition that he's suffering from. So you get this subtle sense of just pure isolation that Jerry feels. And it kind of reminds me in some respects 
um, to the jungle earlier this season, a more confined version of that. Although that's more about, well, I mean, there are a lot of similarities, but uh, it also just it it feels very close to to one another because it's about doubt. It's about doubting what's going on and not knowing what's going on. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah. So but to kind of put put a button on that point, the fact that he has tried to work through the issues with the psychiatrist, multiple psychiatrists at that, just further confuses him and makes him more and more isolated because he's already tried to do the thing that would otherwise fix the situation or help him, but it hasn't worked. So that is just this downer bummer of a, of a situation that Jerry finds himself in. So then he walks away and then he hears Willie laughing in the distance and the soundtrack is getting a little bit, a little bit more heavy and severe with Willie's voice and laughter and to um and to kind of uh uh compliment that Jerry runs he starts running and when he turns a corner or uh, the other side of a corner uh the other wall behind a corner um comes into focus he sees a shadow of Willie sitting in a chair and we hear him say aren't you forgetting someone and so Jerry, this really cool shot, he moves against the wall. He like falls back against the wall and the camera tilts to a Dutch angle. And that is just such an interesting compliment to the distant echoing voice of Willie that's that's now almost over overloading the um, the soundtrack. All of it is working together to be this just enormously ominous, creepy uh, set or creepy experience, this creepy moment, um, with this overall very threatening tone from the disembodied voice of this possessed ventriloquist dummy. (laughs) I don't know if you'd necessarily say possessed, but I, you know what I mean? So again, at this moment, I still like this because it has that plausible deniability. It could still at this point be completely contained to Jerry's imagination. And I appreciate the storytelling for that reason. Then Noreen walks up and the camera goes full Dutch angle. (laughs) And he frantically like, like blocks her path and says that, oh, he's been like, I've been waiting for you. Um, I've been, I've been wanting to, you know, uh, see if you wanted to get a drink or maybe a sandwich or something. And he's doing this because he's panicked and he's scared and he doesn't want to be alone. And we know that immediately. And I love that because the energy of his, of his frantic, like pleading with Noreen is such a quick jump. There is such a quick jump quick escalation for what this is, for what this scene is and everything. And it's wonderful. Um, and as he's frantically pleading with her, she, she runs away. Like she breaks, breaks free of his grasp and runs away. And I just, I love that because this is where we're reaching that kind of crescendo of the suspense and it's, it's, it's working really well. And then like, even then at this point, this stuff is like, the escalation of the te- of the tension and everything is fen- phenomenal because 
it's all leading toward a great finale. And having this in such a short burst, like this could have been part of the actual climax of the, of the episode, but instead it continues building by having even louder music, um, even more aggressive Dutch angles as, um, and in even louder, uh, a louder sound of Willie's voice laughing in Jerry's head as Jerry runs back to the stage and then back to the dressing room. It's just really cool. And then when he gets to the dressing room, it's really incredible set design and production value because again, we're in that Dutch angle land and there's the loud voices of Willie and this more bombastic and boisterous music that's that's kind of really, really putting putting the tension at an a, at, at its apex. And uh, alongside all of that is the fact that the dressing room is completely empty and dark. It is very dark. We can't see anything in the dressing room. And I think that that's fantastic because that adds like the cherry on top of the creepy, suspenseful horror tension of this moment. And it's, it's a blast. It's fantastic. So in Jerry's, um, frantic, um, uh, frantic moments, he unlocks the case and he goes to destroy Willie. Um, but when he does, he looks down and he sees a pair of broken glasses, which feels like, like it's a really nice kind of fun, like callback intentional or not. I'm not sure, uh, to of course time enough at last in season one. And so he actually destroyed goofy goggles and not Willie. And so in this moment, I thought, okay, now all he has is Willie, but like, I thought that that's what the show was going for in this moment. But instead what the show does is it has him look at, look at the glasses in shock and say, wrong one. How could I have gotten the wrong one? And then that's when we see Willie on the couch going full Willie saying, Hey, maybe you need glasses. And then Willie just starts full on talking to Jerry, taunting him with the eyesight bits from Goofy Goggles. And Jerry then asks him, like, how can you be real? And Willie says that he made him what he is today. Jerry gave him life and like he he gave him life and he's the reason why he is who he is, what he is. And then he says, I hope you're satisfied from the song of the same name, which I thought was interesting. Um, Yeah, I don't know. But uh, I kind of, that's when I started thinking like, okay, maybe this episode is a metaphor about art and giving yourself to performance or maybe the pursuit of fame, but maybe not how like working a crowd imbues an object with life that controls, that can control the performer. Um, I don't know, but I'll get more into that after, after the, uh, the closing narration, but we end on this wonderful moment that is super creepy where we are now in Kansas City as an MC is introducing Jerry and Willie to the stage. And we have, like, the camera has, the camera is on the backs of Willie and Jerry. And as the, as they're doing their set, the camera pans over and we see that Jerry's face has, has transformed into Willie's. And now he is, he is the dummy and Willie is the ventriloquist. And I thought that was just delightful. Fantastic. Um, and then we get our closing narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. 
Well, anyway, I met this broad coming down the street. Uh, it was a broad street. <laughs> What's known in the parlance of the times is the old and, switcheroo. Uh, we were walking along From boss together. to blockhead and a few uneasy lessons. And if you're given to nightclubbing on occasion, check this act. It's called Willie and Jerry. And they generally are booked into some of the clubs along the gray night way, known as the Twilight Zone. So I think that there is a ton of stuff to mine from this episode. And I was pretty impressed by it because I was not expecting it to have as much depth as it does. Um, and I don't know necessarily if this is if this is if, if if this is necessarily the intended read to have of it, or if this is just me something extrapolating a a theme from it, but basically, I think that there may be a read of this episode that involves someone giving themselves to an act, a performance that they do. And I kind of feel like maybe it's it's more along the lines of it being a one note act. Like Jerry is a ventriloquist, a style of entertainment that is seen as one note, like hence the club owner saying, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. So what's holding him back, this is kind of my pet theory for this episode, is that what's holding him back from being the star that Frank sees in him is the haunting of the dummy, which is the haunting of a relatively mediocre, uh, kind of mediocre type of performance. Um, and that drives him to alcohol and a sense of self-destruction that ultimately leads to just complete mania into the old switcheroo, um, which I take to be a metaphor for Jerry just being confined forever in this state of performance and not being able to not not being willing or able to rise through that to a more successful tier of success. Um, and I can kind of see that as being like meaning that Jerry is like the whole point of the episode and Jerry's experience is that Jerry is buckling under the pressure to become a bigger success. And maybe Willie haunting him is a metaphor for the fear that Jerry feels about the prospect of doing something different or something bigger and maybe not attaining the success that Frank sees in him. I don't know. But in any case, the ultimate end of Jerry is a bummer um, <laughs> because his downfall is that he succumbs to the middling success of his ventriloquism. And he's an entertainer who has chosen to stay at a certain level, but the, the actual episode, the end of the episode is about the death of aspiration. So Jerry is giving himself to Willie and trapping himself in this moderately successful level with no hope of achieving any further success. And I find that to be pretty interesting as uh, I, that's my interesting read of the episode. And I kind of think that maybe if there was a little bit more with Jerry talking about how he wanted to be more successful and just can't now, um, maybe that would have worked a little bit better for me. But, uh, but yeah, but for the most part, everything else works really well for me. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so that's my review of the dummy. 
and I have a couple of pieces of trivia before I get into my bonus review um, that, yeah, I'm going to read this. I think this is from IMDb. Um, the dummy Willie was created by American uh, ventriloquist supplies maker uh, Ravilla Petty, uh, while the dummy scene at the end was created by English builder Len Insel. Uh, Willie is in the private collection of magician David Copperfield, as I said before. And also the next piece of trivia I have is that Rod Serling's reference in the closing narration to the great night uh, way, or I'm sorry, the gray night way um, is a play, uh, play on words on the common nickname for Broadway, which is apparently uh, great white way, which I hadn't known. And, uh, and then I just imagine this being like the end credits of the episode and, uh, and, and the kind of credit screen saying, uh, Willie will return in Caesar and me because the ventriloquist dummy in this episode, uh, was later reused in the episode, uh, Caesar and me, which I know nothing about, but it is going to be in the, um, one of the, that episode is going to air during the marathon this year. So there's, there's that. Um, okay, so let me go ahead and close out this episode with a, a kind of, I was thinking I would do a more complete review of it, but I'm not sure if I have enough to talk about really, but, uh, a review of Carol for Another Christmas. I'll play a little bit of music from the movie here. That is incredibly loud, so I'm going to turn that down. Uh, Carol for Another Christmas was a TV movie that aired on December 28th, 1964, what I knew before watching this was that uh, it was an adaptation of A Christmas Carol written by Rod Serling. Um, and what I found out later is that the um, it, that, it, that it was a production that was done as part of um, an effort to kind of uh, promote the work of the UN. Um, yeah, I'll talk more about that in, um, in, in trivia and everything, but... Um, I have the plot summary courtesy of Wikipedia. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole, I mean, it's multiple pages. Basically it is, I'll read the like first paragraph. So, uh, or the first few sentences. So, uh, on Christmas Eve, Daniel Grudge, a rich, uh, American industrialist sits alone in a dark room of his mansion. Uh, he looks at a framed display of war medals on the wall and seems about to cry. Basically, I'm not going to read all of that. So, <laughs> uh, I am going to spoil the episode or I'm going to spoil the movie. So go watch it on HBO max or on YouTube. But basically it is a retelling of a Christmas Carol from, uh, with the Scrooge character being a rich industrialist isolationist, uh, person who, um, is visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve. So this movie, uh, again, I'm going to spoil it, lightly spoil it. It's, I mean, it's a Christmas Carol, so <laughs> you, you guys know what it is, but, uh, spoilers on. So, uh, starring in this movie was Sterling Hayden as Daniel Grudge. This was his only collaboration with Sterling. Um, he had some notable roles over his career, uh, the Asphalt Jungle, Dr. Strangelove, uh, the Godfather, The Long Goodbye, and co-starring as The Ghost of Christmas Past is Steve Lawrence, who would uh, appear in one episode of Night Gallery in 1971, and making an appearance is Ava Marie Saint as Lieutenant Gibson. This was her only Sterling collaboration, but of course she's famous for being in North by Northwest, On the Waterfront, Grand Prix. 
And as Ghost of Christmas Present is Pat Hingle, which I was delighted to see um, because I know him best from the Batman films. But this is his, or I'm, he was... He was also in one episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, The Incredible World of Horace Ford in season four and other um, other Serling productions that he was in uh, included one episode of The Loner in 1966 uh, titled The Mourners for Johnny Sharp, part one. And he also appeared in Nightmare at Ground Zero in 1953, that episode of Suspense that I reviewed in episode 14 of this very podcast. Um, And he also appeared in a TV movie written by Serling that aired in 1968 that unfortunately I cannot find anywhere online, but it's called Certain Honorable Men. Uh, I fumbled that. Certain Honorable Men. Um, And the premise for that TV movie was the protege of a a powerful congressman discovers his boss's corruption. Um, Again, sadly, I can't find it anywhere online, but, you know. Um, With uh, um, Pat Hingle, (laughs) some notable roles. Notable roles. My my tongue is tied in this uh, tonight. So notable roles for Pat Hingle include uh, several Batman films in which he played Commissioner Gordon. Uh, the Tim Burton Batman and and uh, and the other ones after that. Uh, Talladega Nights, The Battle of Ricky Bobby. Uh, yeah, geez, my tongue. Like, seriously, I can't talk. Um, and also, he appeared in the movie Maximum Over- Overdrive, uh, directed by Stephen King. <laughs> um, check out Tower Junkies. And he also appeared in the 1997 TV, TV miniseries adaptation of The Shining, another Stephen King collection or connection. And final bit of, uh, of notable roles for Pat Hingle is that he appeared in one memorable episode of the TV sitcom wings, which I adored in which he played Joan Brian Hackett's, uh, grandfather, possibly, um, <laughs> who ended up being a, uh, kind of an imposter who was, he was, he was, he would tell stories that were to, to Joe and Brian, that were clearly uh, just <laughs> uh, recounting plots of movies, so it was it was really funny. Uh, and then, oh, and then also appearing in this in this movie is Robert Shaw as Ghost of uh, Christmas Future. This was his only Serling production, but of course he played Quint in Jaws, and he also appeared in From Russia with Love and The Sting. And rounding out the cast is Peter Sellers as Imperial Me. Uh, this was his only Serling collaboration, but of course he has several notable roles. He's Peter Sellers. Um, he appeared in Dr. Strangelove, several Pink Panther movies. He's a legend. Um, yeah. And so writer for this was of course Rod Serling and director was Joseph L. Mankiewicz, whose filmography includes No Way Out, which was an early Sidney Poitier movie that I reviewed in a Patreon potpourri review earlier this year. Um, and he also appeared in All About Eve, which I will be reviewing with, uh, Tiny and Ben on Obsessive Viewer whenever we do our next Ebert's Great Movies List, um, uh, episode. And he also directed Guys and Dolls and Cleopatra. So, um, now let me go ahead and talk about this movie. Okay, so as a whole... Um, Carol for Another Christmas was, was pretty, pretty solid. Um, I think I rated it on Letterboxd, uh, probably three or three and a half stars. I didn't even think to bring that up, but, 
Um, by the way, check out Letterboxd and follow me on Letterboxd uh, at Obsessive Viewer. But um, yeah, I rated it three and a half stars and it's it's pretty solid. It's pretty impressive because the term TV movie kind of gets thrown around as a kind of derogatory word, I guess. But it really feels like this um, has a very big production value. Like the sets, uh, the set design of, of several of the locations, um, they differentiate a lot of stuff between past, present, and future. Um, and there's some really good set de- decoration there. Also, I mean, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, um, his direction is very, very impressive. And it is a very cinematic TV movie. I'll say that. Um, but the thing that kind of falters for me with this, with this iteration of a Christmas Carol is, um, kind of the impetus of Grudge's journey through the three ghosts and everything. And I think there's a little bit of, there's a bit of a problem there. Like, to be honest, I haven't really seen, I haven't recently seen a Christmas Carol or anything, but, um, Peter Fonda played, um, in this iteration, in this movie, uh, Peter Fonda plays Marley, who is the son of Grudge, who is the ghost that comes to haunt him and tells him he's going to be visited and all that. However, he was edited out of the film shortly before it aired. <laughs> so we don't get that. He's not like, he's not the, um, the, he's, he's very different. <laughs> so, uh, Marley is silent and not like I'm reading from the trivia, not portrayed as the suffering spirit doomed to wander the earth with his chains or anything. He's just there. He see, like we see a couple of shots of him, um, a reflection in a window and him sitting at a table. And we see this giant portrait of him as well. So he's not as big of an influence in the, in the movie or anything. And I think that that's to the detriment of the film because it does really feel like it, uh, is a bit of a leap for him to, for grudge to kind of go through this journey and then come out the other side, a changed person. And that's kind of a bummer because I, I feel like that's a weakness of, to be honest, the writing and that that's a bummer. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a shame, but the actual segments where he's speaking to the ghost of Christmas past, present and future, um, they're all pretty solid. Um, the ghost of Christmas future has a scene with uh, an extended sequence with, with, uh, Peter Sellers as this very just flamboyant and boisterous, um, leader in a like world leader in a uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland uh anarchy and it's just it is it is very very big it's a good performance by peter sellers but it is haunting and scary and 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 creepy um but yeah so there's that i'm 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 falling into me going into different uh different things uh not going in order or anything but I will say that the Ghost of Christmas Present um, was not the most interesting to me. Well, no, it was. I think that that's the one where they go to uh, where Ava Marie Saint. I think that it's, I think it's a flashback, or it's a, I don't know. But they go to the site of Hiroshima, and it's a wasteland. It looks a lot like Time Enough at Last, honestly. But 
uh, he grudge is kind of just shown like the after effects of the atomic bomb. And it is, it's described to the character and it's described to us. So we don't see, um, much except for the the destruction all around, but the description is very horrific and scary and, and, uh, heartbreaking. And then finally, oh, finally, or at the beginning, the ghost of Christmas, Christmas past is an interesting segment where, um, he is just telling, he's telling grudge about the wars and, and about like the history of mankind and how we, how humanity has created this machine to where we can, we send young men off to war to die at the age of 18 and that's why I should have said this at the beginning, but this was uh, funded by the Tulsan um, uh, thing, uh, Tulsan, oh, I can't, Foundation, Tulsan Foundation, uh, produced by the nonprofit Tulsan Foundation. Um, it's basically, oh, I did say this before, I'm sorry. So it is, it was a pro-UN, it was, it was used to, um, uh, to promote the work of the UN and everything. It's an anti-war film. So it's also interesting because the, um, everyone involved worked for scale because, uh, they were very much, uh, into the subject and into the, the themes of it and everything. So that's interesting. Um, I thought I had a bit here about, uh, everything, but uh, I guess I don't, but anyway, um, so, uh, so yeah, so, uh, there's some good segments and everything though. Like I said, the ghost of uh, Christmas past is a very, um, that segment is very much this mournful sort of, uh, demeanor that, um, the actor Steve Lawrence brings to the role. And I think that that's really, really, um, impressive to me. I think that's the standout of the movie is him lamenting the loss of life in war and everything. So I really like that. Um, but then again, like, like I've kind of hinted around at and everything, I don't think that the movie really sticks the landing all that well. Um, when we come back to the present and it's after grudge has been visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future, he has turned over a new leaf. He he knows that, you know, he should be more involved and and he shouldn't be so grudgy and stuff. Um, it just doesn't connect. Like, it doesn't have that uh, catharsis that the script really needs it to have. And that's kind of a bummer for me because it doesn't really work all that well. But... Um, but yeah, but I mean, but for the most part, it's, it's a very well done movie, um, especially for a TV movie. It was one of, I think four planned or six planned, um, TV movies to promote the UN. Uh, let me see what I can dig up here, Carol for another Christmas. Cause I thought I had it in my notes, but I guess I don't. Uh, but let's see. Um, but it was originally, um, planned for, uh, several, several ones. Oh, also I forgot to mention that the, um, that the, 
oh oh god i just completely lost it what was i what did i forget to mention um that the level like like the um oh that's that's what i was gonna say i'm so sorry (laughs) so okay so it was originally intended to only be shown once on tv on december 28th 1964 um, and then it was gone for like a very long time. It wasn't screened anywhere or anything until, um, uh, let's see. So, okay. So here we go. I'm going to read this from Wikipedia. Uh, following its initial ABC broadcast, Carol for another Christmas was not rebroadcast for nearly five decades. Uh, during that time, the film was not commercially available, although it could be seen at the Paley Center for Media in New York and Los Angeles and the UCLA Film and Television Archive in Los Angeles. Um, so let's see. After 48 years, Carol for Another Christmas was finally rebroadcast when TCM, Turner Classic Movies, telecast it on December 16th, 2012. Um, and then since then, TCM has aired the film uh, annually in December. Um, and now it's available, of course, on HBO Max. Um, yeah, but it hasn't been released on, at least as of 2015, uh, hasn't been released on home video or DVD or anything like that. But it did come on to, uh, HBO Max on dis- in December of 2021. And here in December 2022, uh, the few hours we have left of December 2022, my by few hours, I mean 24 hours. Um, it is still available on HBO Max. And like I said, it is available on YouTube as well. Overall, Carol for Another Christmas was a very solid and well-acted movie. Peter Sellers is kind of the standout. Is the, he's His performance is fantastic. And I really like Sterling Hayden, Hayden um, as well as Grudge. But... Um, but yeah, it, it's it's fine. It's pretty good. Um, I might revisit it. I might make it a kind of uh, put it in rotation for Christmas viewing and everything. But overall, it's it's very solid. So again, that's Carol for Another Christmas. It is streaming on HBO Max, um, and it is available as of this recording on YouTube as well. Link in the show notes. Um, I guess that'll do it for my final podcast of 2022. Um, uh yeah thank you guys so much for for following me along in 2022 i hope you guys are checking out my other shows obsessive viewer and tower junkies next time on anthology i'm gonna have episode 98 which is going to be covering young man's fancy from twilight zone season three of course and i'm gonna crack open science fiction theater season two with the first first episode uh, by reviewing the first episode of season two, Signals from the Heart. So um, I might take a little bit of break, for, a little bit of a break for the new year, but I will be back soon with more anthology. Uh, just wanted to say once again, thank you guys so much for supporting me this year and years past and everything. It is much, much appreciated. Um, I feel like I had a great year in terms of podcasting and writing and everything. Uh, you can all check that out, obsessedviewer.com slash matthurt2022. But, uh, yeah, enjoy the marathon. Thank you guys so much for listening. Happy New Year, and I'll see you in 2023. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV book and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. 
So having said that, <laughs> my two picks for best score for the 2022 um, IFGA awards, I will just go ahead and play a clip from the uh, from the one that I picked the first for my first pick. So here's a clip from my first pick for best score. And it's, of course, Michael Giacchino's score for The Batman, which I loved The Batman. I really did. And the more I think about Michael Giacchino, and I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of Michael Giacchino's work. I mean, from his work in several Pixar movies, as well as, um, obviously, the big one for me is Lost. Um, he, I have said numerous times in the past that he just has a direct channel to my emotional core with his music. And the Batman is really interesting to me because um, I was talking I was talking to my friend Sam about this, that basically it's so interesting to me that Michael G. Kino was able to make the score for the Batman so unique and interesting to itself um, when it's in the shadow of so many other scores for Batman. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.